run into anybody, and uh, so far it's working out okay. <laughs> Pastor Chad Gibbons went up to uh, the platform to give his message, and he told a story about when he and his wife were first married, and uh, and he was doing a kind of a handyman project for his wife. She wanted some shelves done, uh, put up in her laundry room, and uh, laundry room, bathroom kind of a thing, and she wanted some shelves up there, and he says, I can do that. And so uh, he gets them up there, and he's feeling real good about the project. He looks it all over, and it's, and it's good. A couple days go by, and he looks at it, and he goes, right underneath the shelves, there's this little orange spot that was on the wall. And he goes, huh, funny, I didn't recognize that, didn't see that when I was putting up the shelves. Well, I can fix that. I'll just go buy some paint. And so he goes and buys some paint, and he paints it over, and everything is going well. It's just the way that he wanted it to be. And a couple days later, this orange spot returns. He goes, well, he goes, I must have bought bad paint. That's horrible. And so he paints it over again, and a few days later, the orange spot reappears, and he's getting frustrated. He says, you know, he said, I, I, I began to think maybe, maybe there's a deeper problem here than just this spot that's coming. Maybe it's not the paint at all. Maybe it's something within the wall. He began to worry about that, and, and he did a little bit of more research, and he painted it again, of course, and, and tried that. Orange spot reappeared. And he said, what had happened was, he said, I discovered that what had happened when I was nailing the, the when I was nailing the shelves to the wall, one of the nails pierced the drain that came from upsta- the upstairs bathroom. And he says, all this stuff was just kind of oozing into the wall. That's the same thing his congregation said. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he said, so he said, couple more months went by and he said I painted it several times and he said finally got to the bigger problem and and made the repair but he was sharing this and he he said uh, he said you know he said that is my go-to in my spiritual life as well he said if some kind of an orange spot uh, is showing on me he says I want to cover it up so that nobody else sees it you know how important that is at least to yourself anyway. You, you think that other people are going to judge you, and some, some do, so you have some evidence there about the, the, the spots that you might have in your life. And if we could just keep those things painted over, we would be great. But there is a deeper problem than just something that we painted over. And God can only take care of those things. And, and, uh, I was going to advance the, uh, the slide with my car fob. So that might be an orange spot. I'm not sure. You can be the judge of that. So we're in this, uh, we're in this series about, uh, what Jesus was talking about to, uh, to his 12 disciples. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and that's incredibly small. You might not be able to see it, but, uh, we'll try to get through it anyway. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, uh, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. This is the same materials we used last week, so it's just a review. Um, he began to teach them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is new material now, okay? It's, uh, it's, we're going on to, uh, to 8 and 9. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. I got finished last week, and I was talking to some folks, and they said, uh, what about peacemakers? You didn't mention peacemakers, and I'm not sure if I can trust you if you don't mention peacemakers. And I said, wait till next week, and we'll get to the peacemakers. Because it's not enough to have new eyes and a new passion. Uh, it's just not enough to, to recognize that you're poor in spirit, and you'll get the kingdom of heaven uh, for that if you continue in that journey. <clears throat> not enough to mourn about that. It's not enough to to become meek and gentled by God. It's not enough to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not enough to be merciful. Because if we stay there, if we just stay in the hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we'll never get the fullness of peace that we desire. We'll always be painting the spots, the orange spots in our lives. And so, a pure heart is needed. Actually, a pure heart is needed so that we don't go nuts. I mean, it really. If, if you have a, a God-birthed hunger and thirst for righteousness, but you can't get there, if you're, if you're trying and trying and trying and, and, and everything that you've got, you're, you're putting into this, and you just keep on trying and you keep on failing... Oh, you get good at some things, but on the big things, it seems like you fail. It seems like sometimes, at least in my life, it seems like God uh, granted that I had one sin that I couldn't overcome in my own strength, at least one. Other people can identify a lot more, but I was just one sin that I just couldn't do. I, I made deals with God. I did things that I wouldn't normally do so that maybe God would pay attention and, and get this thing out of me. And I was stuck. I was so stuck. And I hungered and thirsted to get over that thing that I was so plagued with. And for 40 years, I was plagued with this thing. And I was a Christian. And I was a pastor. And I was plagued with this thing. And I go, God, this thing's going to kill me. And I couldn't get over it. Until one day, I began to stop focusing on that sin and focused on God and said, Look, if you don't get rid of this thing, it's going to kill me. And if that's all you have for me, then kill me now. That's how tired I was. And I was going nuts. I was a little bit comforted that the Apostle Paul had gone through the same problems. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. A hunger and thirst for righteousness needs to be filled. And God says that it will be filled. That's part of the beatitude. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled but you can't fill yourself. An impure heart 
will keep you from being filled. But a pure heart is possible, but never on your own. Colossians 1, verses 2 and 3, first part of three, uh, 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That would be incredibly comforting, except for when you're stuck. But I find at times that I'm still alienated and hostile in my mind toward God and godliness and righteousness and holiness it's not out of a lack of hunger and thirst and hunger for righteousness, but a heart that searches after wrong things. If my heart is not made pure, if it is not if it is not aligned with God's character, then there's no hope for me. If I simply have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, it will drive me over the edge. And that's where I was for much of the time of my life. I was just, I was just there. I hungered. I really desired God. And I had received Him into my life as Savior, but not really as Lord. I said that I had received Him as Savior and Lord, but I, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what the mechanics of that were. Because I was judging myself continually. And I felt like everybody else was judging me too. And especially if they knew that secret sin that I held on to so tightly, they would definitely judge me. And so I was just stuck. I'm going, God, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way that you can break through in my life. Well, going through that struggle for so long is one of the things that, that brought me to being merciful. I don't judge anyone when they're struggling. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> who am I to throw stones? And I think that's part of the purpose of that struggle. Because a pure heart is possible because God says it's possible, not because we can create it with ourselves. We have to wait for God, and there is a process involved. In much of our theology, everything is instant. When God saves you, it's instant. And it is, because he saves us instantly. When we surrender to him, it's an instant salvation. And I appreciate that. But what we don't talk about very much is the process of how he is saving us and making us pure in his sight. We're pure in his sight instantly. But practically in our lives, it takes a little time. And so 
even when people get discouraged with themselves and the church and, and with God, you can understand and you can have mercy on them and you can pray for them. Help them to hold on. Help them to hold on to you and let go of everything else. King David's a good example of this. Uh, King David, when he was uh, when he was younger, he was a shepherd, and he was youngest in the family, and he was kind of not as important, maybe not as good looking, maybe maybe not as tall as uh, as his brothers, and he was overshadowed by them. He was the youngest in the family. He got kicked around a little bit, and go out there and and just spend time with sheep, and and he did, and he and he he spent time with the sheep, and he spent time with the Lord, and he was uh, he was writing songs, and and he was uh, he just communed with the Lord out there, and he learned how to defend himself uh, against lions and bears and all those kinds of things, and and uh, it was a great time of building in his younger part, and then he was anointed to be king over Israel through a miraculous choosing of God, and and uh, he. Uh, uh, He's got he's got a problem. There's a there's a king who has also been anointed in the land, and he is to follow that king in his kingship. But the king gets jealous of David and begins to pursue his life. And so David writes this account uh, is in Second uh, Samuel, but he writes a a, a duplicate uh, part in the Psalms. As a, as a song. And so this is David's song. Uh, he says, uh, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. I've kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Have mercy on me, O God, he says in a different psalm for a different time. You see, he's talking about his his righteousness, and he's, he's talking about how God had defeated King Saul, and, and King Saul had been had been pursuing him and there was a couple of opportunities that Dave had to to kill King Saul but he wouldn't do it because King Saul was the Lord's anointed he wouldn't do it he said I will not do this and his men were saying oh yeah this is this opportunity God has put him in your hands no why don't you just I'm not going to do it he's in God's hands not mine and so David pens it as a psalm he puts it in he they they Put it in Second Samuel, and it is also a psalm. And and David's talking about his righteousness. His the Lord. Yet you stand before God and say, "Lord, according to my righteousness, you saved me." Oh, this is wonderful. Well, that'd be a really good thing if you could keep it up. But fast forward a few years, and David is uh, is not with his men fighting like he usually is and it's the time there was a time there was a season when kings went out to battle which i find interesting a little troubling but interesting and so david is not with his men he stays back and he's uh he's going around walking around on the, on the top floor of the palace and he noticed 
he notices a young lady uh, bathing down on her her rooftop and it's below his and so he notices her and I mean he really notices her and he really desire comes up and he wants her and so he invites her to his palace and he takes her in a, in a very uh, romantic way you might say um, and she becomes pregnant and oh my there's an orange spot if people find out the law says that I should be stoned and she would be stoned and so can't have this orange spot showing and so he crafts a plan he 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 brings her husband home from the war turns out that her husband is one of his mighty men that are just so loyal to him he invites him home says how's the war going that's going you know I, I should get back <laughs> but it's it's going well and, and he goes well you know why don't you uh why don't you go home and be with your wife it's been a while and just uh uh, then you can, I'll send you back to the war. That was his plan. And this man was so righteous, he says, I am not going to go back and enjoy my wife while my men are out there risking their lives and dying. I just won't do it. And so David tries to get him drunk and says, okay, I'll go home with your wife. And he sleeps in the, in the palace. And whatever David tries to do is not working to paint over this orange spot. And so David writes out a plan, writes out orders, gives them to Uriah and sends him off to the general of the armed forces and says, uh, give this to your commander. So he does. He's obedient. He doesn't, he doesn't open up the, uh, the message or anything. He gives it to his commander. He's just a loyal man. The message was, put Uriah the Hittite out in where the fighting is most fierce and then withdraw from him. It's a murder sentence. It's a death sentence. And, and David's hand was the murdering hand. The plan was successful, and David goes, ah, oh, off the hook. The orange spot can't come back now. And just as a compassionate thing, I'll take Uriah's wife into the palace, and she'll become my wife out of compassion. Great plan for trying to cover over sin. But you see, God watches, <laughs> and God knows. And David's most, David's highest concern at that point was nobody find out. And so God sends a prophet to him, tells him a story, and David gets upset about the injustice of the story. He goes, who is it? It's you. He tells him what he did. 
David's going, it became known. It became known and it has been fully known by God. And so David is in distress. And he turns to God for mercy. And he pens this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love. You notice the difference between these? According to my righteousness, you've saved me. He said earlier. Now, it's according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that sacred place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your, from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David understood that all of his righteousness that he had proclaimed before this was not a righteousness that would sustain him because he had a heart problem. He understood what the heart problem was. And in agony, he called out to God to save him. Because a pure heart is what is needed to sustain righteousness. We'll have a hunger and thirst for it, but a pure heart will sustain it and bring it forward and make it possible. A pure heart is possible. So the Bible says that in Christ, in all those passages down there and more, it says that in Christ we are a new creation, we're blameless, reconciled, without blemish and free from accusation, blameless and pure, without fault, and that we shine among this warped and crooked generation like a star in the sky. It says that we are spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. It says that we may be, we may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless. 
that we are kept from stumbling and presented without fault to his glorious presence. That's what the Bible says about us. Sometimes don't feel that victorious. But you're not victorious in yourself. You're victorious in him. Because when we, when we give ourselves to Christ, he comes in and he begins to work on us. He begins to work on our perspective and he begins to work in our minds and he begins to work in our hearts. And he gives us these desires to see righteousness the way that he sees righteousness, but we don't have the capacity for that yet. And through this process, he eventually shows us what we need. But we are all of those things in Christ. And he's developing all those things in us. We are able to live victoriously even in our failures because we are not masters of the program. He is. And he will carry us along. Pure heart is possible. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Familiar verses that we let sometimes just go over our heads. They need to be in our hearts. Perseverance leads us to a pure heart. James 1, verses 2 through 5. This is a voice translation. In the New International Version, it says, Consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. The voice puts it in, a, in a kind of a, a, a different thing. It's the same thing, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Don't run from tests and hardship, brothers and sisters. As difficult as they are, you'll ultimately find joy in them if you embrace them. Your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience brought on by endurance will equip you to complete the long journey and cross the finish line, mature, complete, and wanting nothing. If you don't have all the wisdom needed for this journey, then all you have to do is ask God for it, and God will grant all that you need. He gives lavishly and never scolds those who ask. So a pure heart, pretty important. This process that God takes us through is vital to us living as Christian people. And the only thing he asks is that we depend on him for that. 
See, when we have a pure heart, we'll see God. That's what it says. Blessed are the pure heart, those see God. We'll see God in everything. We'll see God in good times and we'll see God in evil times. We'll no longer cast blame. But we will bless others. A pure heart is possible. When we have a pure heart, we will then become peacemakers. We'll become ambassadors of Christ. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I, uh, <clears throat> for a number of years, I, I just, from, from the time that I was 16 to the time that I was 30, I wanted to be a pastor. But I, the, the road just wasn't available to me. Uh, I, I grew up in a non-Christian home, and I had no idea how I could get from where I was to become a pastor. I just didn't know what the steps were. I didn't know anything about it. And I, when I, when I, was going with the girl that I would marry. She many times told me I will not be a pastor's wife. And as we got closer to marriage, she echoed that very definitely. I will not be a pastor's wife. And I said, that's okay. I said, maybe I missed the call somehow. Maybe, maybe God just meant that I was going to be working in a, in a church and, and helping, but I, I don't see how he's going to get me into pastoral ministry. It's just not going to happen. And so we married and we had children. And we would talk about it every once in a while, and, and sometimes she'd say, I'm not going to be a pastor's wife. I know that. But then sometimes she would come to me and she said, you know, it seems like God is speaking to me about preparing for pastoral ministry. And I go, no, that, that ship's already gone. <laughs> it's sailed. I, I'm, I'm not going to be a pastor. I don't see how I can get to be a pastor from where I'm at. And we went like that for years, back and forth. And uh, there'd be... So we didn't talk about it all the time, but, but there would be those times when it came up. Until one day, she came in and she said, I think that God is, and I said, yeah, I do too. I've been thinking about it for several weeks now, and I just didn't know how to bring it up to you. She didn't even finish the sentence. We knew what we were talking about. I said, well, what's, what are the steps here? And I said, well, I guess we 
sell our house and we moved to Marion, Indiana and go to this place called Marion College that by the time I graduated, they changed the name. Realizing that I was going to graduate from Marion College, they said we need to improve our reputation a little bit. So they call it now Indiana Wesleyan University. But uh, that's not not really a true story. But um, (laughs) I don't know why they changed it that. But it was the year I graduated that they changed it. So, And so when I became a pastor, I, I put Pastor Mark on everything. I was Pastor Mark. I was Pastor Mark to everyone, and, and I loved being Pastor Mark. It was fun. There was, a, it was all a, a dream that I had that I didn't think I was going to be able to have, and, and so... I, I wrote, I signed things, Pastor Mark, and, and people uh, referred to me as Pastor Mark. I liked it. Until one day I, I go, you know, I think I like this title a little bit too much, and I don't think it's accurate. Because, really, I, I, had, I had looked at this verse, and I go, I'm no, I'm no more special than anyone else in the church. I just get to stand up and talk to people about God. I said, what I really am is that I'm an ambassador of Christ. And so I started signing things, Mark Lipscomb, ambassador of Christ and God, just as a tagline. And one of the guys in my church, they recognized the change, and he goes, that's kind of weird. And and we were changing, uh, we, we were changing our email things and he said what do you want your new, new email to be it was uh, it was pastor at and I go I want Mark at and he goes well that doesn't seem very respectful I said you know I think I'm past that needing to be respected I think I need to be an ambassador of Christ in God and and so God works on us in various different ways Jesus was asked one time he says teacher what's the greatest commandment in the law Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You see, not only is a pure heart possible, but a pure heart is expected. I looked and looked and looked for a for a video this morning that would uh, that would illustrate a pure heart. I couldn't find one. But in my in my search, I came across a story that was familiar to me, but I had not read it in a long time. It's about two ladies. One lady's name was Betsy, and the other one was Corey. In 
It happened in the time, uh, it's a true story, and it happened in the time of the rise of the Nazis in Germany. Said one night, Germany invaded the Netherlands. Corey and Betsy were awakened by the sound of bombs dropping. Terrified, they began to pray. At first, they prayed for the Netherlands, those who were dying and injured, their queen, etc. Then Betsy started praying for the Germans, the ones who were dropping the bombs. She saw them as being entangled in a great evil that had been loosed in Germany. Corey looked at her sister in amazement, then continued her own prayers by whispering, Oh Lord, listen to Betsy, not me, because I cannot pray for those men at all. As they were being processed, they were arrested and they were they were helping Jews, they were hiding Jews, and they were they were helping folks. That's just who they were. They were Christian people and they were arrested and taken to concentration camps. As they were being processed into vote, Betsy talked to Corey about teaching the women around them to love. If people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love, she said. We must find a way. You and I, no matter how long it takes. It took a moment, but then Corey realized that her sister was talking about loving the guards. Corey said, I glanced at the matron seated at the desk ahead of us. I saw a gray uniform and a visored hat. Betsy saw a wounded human being. And I wondered, not for the first time, what sort of person she was, the sister of mine, what kind of road she followed while I trudged behind on an all-too-solid earth. While they were in, while they were in vote, Betsy and Corey found out who had betrayed them to the Gestapo and gotten them arrested. Corey was furious. She recalled, flames of fire seemed to leap around in my heart. I thought of father, of father's final hours, of the underground work so abruptly halted. And I knew that if he stood in front of me right now, I would kill him. All of me ached with the violence of my feelings about the man who had done us so much harm. That night, I did not sleep. But Betsy didn't seem to harbor the same rage. Finally, one night, Corey, who had not slept in a while, since she'd heard the betrayer's name, asked 
her sister. Betsy, don't you feel anything about him? Doesn't it bother you? Betsy answered, oh, yes. Yes, Corey. Bothers me terribly. I've felt for him ever since I knew. And I pray for him whenever his name comes into my mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering. Corey said, for a long time, I just lay there silent in a huge shadowy barracks, restless with the sighs, the snores, the stirrings of hundreds of women. Once again, I had the feeling that this sister of mine, whom I had spent all my life, belonged somehow to another order of beings. Shortly after they arrived at another concentration camp, Ravensburg, Betsy insisted that she and Corey do as the scripture said and thank God for everything about the barracks they found themselves in. Corey wondered what there was to be thankful for. So Betsy started listing things. being assigned to the same barracks as sisters. Corey agreed. The Bible Corey was holding in her hands, Corey agreed. By the grace of God, a miracle, one might say, they had been able to smuggle a Bible into both concentration camps. By the time they arrived at Ravensburg, they had read through the entire New Testament twice, and we're working on the third time through. She, she, can, she continued the list Betsy did. The extreme overcrowding, which allowed for more women to have opportunities to share in the daily devotions that she and Corey always tried to have. Corey agreed, but reluctantly. Finally, Betsy said, for the fleas. Oh, no, Corey said, not for the fleas. I'm not going there. I'm not going to thank God for these fleas. Betsy just looked at her with kindness and said, Give thanks in all circumstances, Betsy. Or Betsy quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. It says in all circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so, Corey writes, We stood between piers of bunks, gave thanks for fleas, but this time, I was certain Betsy was wrong. Betsy died before they could be released. She died at 59. Betsy was always frail physically. And at a memorial service they were having for Betsy, people were sharing about their lives. And, and someone who knew the family well said, You know, 
growing up. When I saw Corey and Betsy, I was, I was sure that Corey was a strong one. She was just physically strong and, and Betsy was frail. She had a lot of things wrong with her. But she said, when you were in prison, in matters of faith, Betsy was the strong one. And Corey said, I agree. Betsy's last words to Corey were this. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And God will give us the love to be able to forgive our enemies. A pure heart is able to forgive enemies and love enemies even when the enemy is yourself. A pure heart is expected. It's possible. And it is brought about by Christ. Oh, a couple of other things. Uh, <clears throat> peacemakers. When you become a peacemaker, you have a pure heart and you become a peacemaker and you love your enemies, you're going to be persecuted. Sorry, it's part of it. <laughs> You'll be persecuted, but those who are persecuted, there's the kingdom of heaven. And not only does it say it once, it says it twice. You'll be persecuted. Great is our reward in heaven. Let me just say that you'll be persecuted by yourself sometimes. You'll be persecuted by the world sometimes, and you'll be persecuted by the church sometimes. Someone asked me, why the church? I said, because much of the church is still stuck in hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And they're trying to to, to hold on to that struggle between their own sinful selfishness and the desire that God has birthed in their heart and they have, they have made rules and they have, they have tried to exist in that place and they get angry when someone says you can be free of that because they don't think it's possible. Yeah, even the church will get after you about that. But they'll get over it if they stay in Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You find yourself in persecution. You're being treated as a prophet of God. So Jesus laid out this entire process in the introduction to a sermon that he would preach. And most of that sermon was saying, you've heard of this? No, it's this way. When you find yourself poor in spirit, you know that God has, God knows more than you. You'll gain the kingdom of heaven. That's the entry point. You'll mourn because you, you have this, you don't know as much as you thought you do. 
You don't have all the answers like you thought you did, but you'll be comforted from that. And God will gentle you. You'll inherit the earth. He'll birth in you a hunger and thirst for righteousness that will be filled, and you'll have mercy on those who haven't been filled with that yet. And you'll be shown mercy because of that. You'll be pure in heart, and you'll see God in everything and be a peacemaker. Called children of God, and you'll be persecuted. And yours will be the kingdom of heaven, which is the same thing as being poor in spirit. Kingdom of heaven. You'll be persecuted, and great is your reward in heaven. You cannot be in this process unless you repent of your own abilities and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's a process for every new step that we take. It's it's the overall process that we'll all go through if we want to be following Christ. But this process in, in shorter steps goes through every new journey that we have. In the new journey that, that we are on together for this short time here at this church. In finding a new pastor, you'll go through these steps. Hopefully you can stave off the persecution part, but... Uh, But there's growth in that, too. We don't go through steps because God hates us, but because God loves us. He desires for us to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And He will bring us there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We rejoice that You take us through a process. We don't like every element of the process. We'll just admit that. But Father, we thank you that you love us so much. That you're able to give us a pure heart and make us peacemakers. Lord, help us in this process to hang on. Not to hang on to ourselves, not to hang on to some kind of ability to figure this thing out, not hang on to solutions that don't work that we make up, but to hang on to you and to let everything else go so that you can truly be Lord of our lives and that we can shine in a crooked world. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.